The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Franklin, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today is from Isaiah 9-6 in chapter 10, verse 20 to 21. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Chapter 10, 20 and 21. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will lean, will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, mighty God. This remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Mary, for reading that passage for us. My name is Russ Ramsey. I'm the pastor here at Christ Pres Cool Springs. It's good to be with you all as we continue in this Advent series that we're in now. Sorry, I just have to get everything just so up here. It's part of my charm. (laughs) Mighty God, that's the part of this verse in Isaiah that we're talking about today, the power, the strength of Jesus. And I want to ask the question, Where in your life right now do you need God to be particularly strong? Where do you feel like, I need him to be strong? A lot of times we think of the strength of God, we think of the strength of anyone in terms of uh, relative strength. Strength as in he's stronger than this, he's stronger than that. And just when I think about things that are happening in the life of our own church here, stories of things that you all are walking through. I think about places where we're struggling and places where we're weak, where we're exhausted, where we're at a stage in parenting where it's not going the way that we drew it up in our minds when our kids were little and we're wrestling with what to do and how to navigate things and feeling that feeling uh, that is a very helpless feeling of knowing that you can't, change a heart and you would give anything to change a heart and you can't I think about illnesses and sicknesses half of our team is out this morning uh, because of some bug or another going around we have people here recovering from surgery we have people who are preparing for the passing of loved ones and walking through these seasons of a road to an end. We have the holidays and we have that dynamic where families come together and all the things that come with it and the relational dynamic and the struggle and the brokenness of, of what's happening there. And we, we, we need Jesus to be stronger than those things. And we want him to be stronger than the brokenness and the sickness and and the mortality and all of that. But the strength of Jesus is, is different than that kind of strength. It's not the kind of strength where he's just stronger than other strong things. It's that he is perfectly strong. 
He's strong in a category unto himself. And I think about this in a passage in the gospel that I marvel at every time I come across it. It's one of my favorite moments in the story of the life of Jesus. And it's the moment when he has been handed over, he's been arrested, he's been beaten, and he's been handed over to Pontius Pilate. And Pilate doesn't want anything to do with this. This is, a, this is a bother to him, that he has to deal with a, what is in his mind a, a religious dust-up. But the religious leaders are telling him that he needs to put this person to death because he is a blasphemer, but not only that, he's a threat to Caesar. And so Pilate takes Jesus into his inner chamber, away from this angry crowd, to examine him, to question him. And the reason he's doing this, the reason he's taking him inside to question him and to examine him is is because he's trying to give Jesus every opportunity in the world to just defend himself. Because Pilate is more than willing at this point to hear his defense and figure out how to just let him go. And so he questions Jesus and Jesus doesn't speak. And Pilate gets exasperated with him. And he says to him, why won't you defend yourself? Don't you realize that I have the power here to send you to your death, but I also have the power to release you? And that's when the mighty God speaks. And he says to Pilate, you would have no power if it wasn't given to you by my Father in heaven. I love that moment. I love that moment. Because it's a place where we see the authority of Jesus on display, it's just shining in an otherwise bleak moment. We see the strength of our Lord in a category unto itself. He is unafraid of Pontius Pilate. He's unafraid of what Pontius Pilate can do to him. He's unafraid of what anybody can do to him. And it's not that he's unafraid because he just thinks he's tough. It's not that. For a lot of us, that's what we want, is Lord, just make me tough enough to deal with whatever it is that's going on. No. For him, it's it's not that he's unafraid because he believes that he can handle whatever it is that Pilate's going to dish out. It's that he's unafraid because he knows who he is. And who he is, is he is the son of the God who governs the cosmos. the second person of the Trinity come in the flesh for this moment. This is a place where Jesus is in that room with Pilate where you see the kingship of Jesus on display. The very thing that the religious leaders 
told Pilate was the reason why Jesus needed to be put to death because he claims to be king and there can only be one king in a Roman-occupied land. Jesus behaves exactly like the king of the universe in front of Pilate, unfazed. And he's the king. He is the king. And he's not the king because some group of people got together and put a crown on his head. He's the king because he is and always has been the ruler of creation. The world and everything in it is his. That king calls you to himself. And he calls you to himself to find refuge in him, to be in the shelter of his strength, To us, the child is born. To us, the son is given. We look to so many other things for protection. We look to so many other things for security and safety. And Jesus, our mighty God, the king who governs, calls us to himself. When he was born, learned men from the east came to lay gifts at his feet. And the reason they came to lay gifts at his feet is because they had heard that he had been born king of the Jews. And as Jesus hung on a cross dying, above his head hung a sign authored by Pontius Pilate himself, which read, the king of the Jews. This proclamation of the kingship of Jesus bookended his incarnation. It was there at the beginning. It was there at the end. And it was true. Pilate and the wise men were right in the way that they described him, but they didn't understand. Though they were correct, neither them, nor the Romans, nor the religious leaders, nor even Jesus' disciples at the time really understood what it meant that Jesus was their king. Because they saw the king's role as the person whose job it was to make sure that they weren't destroyed by enemies, that he would be stronger than other strengths. But Jesus' role as their king wasn't just to protect them from being destroyed by other enemies. His role as king is to give us life, to give us everlasting life. As citizens in his kingdom, which nothing in this world can topple. But we run to other things for security and safety. Is this your view of God? Is his primary role to just make sure that bad things don't happen to you while you're eking out your days here in this place? Or is it something more than that? Is it to fill your life with joy? and with meaning, and with peace, and with wisdom, and with zeal for his holiness. Jesus was born so that he might lay down his life. And when that time had come, he told his disciples, when the time had come for him to lay down his life, this time right before he ended up in Pilate's chamber, 
Jesus told his disciples, I must go to Jerusalem. And then he said this, I must go to that city where the prophets are killed because my time has come. This is from Luke 13. He said, oh, Jerusalem, I grieve. When I come to you, you will do to me what you always do to your prophets. But I have longed to gather you up. I've longed to gather you up under my wings, but you wouldn't have me. And because you reject me, you choose instead your own judgment. Jesus is saying to his people, I'm the king you've needed, but you won't have me. I've longed like a, like a mother hen gathers her chicks. I've longed to gather you under my wings, but you wouldn't have me. God's people are created to know and love their maker, to cast ourselves upon his mercy. We're made to do this in the wake of the catastrophe of the fall. But when the leaders, the religious leaders rose up to lead the people, they didn't call for mercy, they called for action. I like that bumper sticker that says, Jesus is coming soon, look busy. They called for action, for rules over affection, for sacrifice, over mercy. And then they constructed systems for this. A system with enough rules to tell people what to do and when. And as they constructed that system, they walked away from the heart of God. And it grieved the Lord. It grieved him then, it grieves him now when we do that. Because there's this chasm. There's a chasm between what the Lord has called his people to and what his people want. And during Advent, what we celebrate is we celebrate God's response to that chasm. The chasm between what we need and what we want. In Isaiah, in the days of Isaiah, we talked about this a little bit last week. But I want us to look at a little of what's going on because there's a reference to something in verses 10, 20, and 21 that talk about how the Lord is going to preserve this remnant, right? That God is in the business of keeping his people. And so he's going to preserve a remnant, even though everything is falling apart, this relatively small group that will remain faithful. What was going on in Israel at that time when he spoke these words? Well, Israel's king responding to the political and military trouble around their people which was largely brought on by their own unwillingness to follow the Lord as a people. Israel's king, his name was King Pekah. He saw that Assyria was coming. And to seek security from Assyria, he formed a defensive alliance with a king named King Rezin of Aram. And so Israel's king forms an alliance with the king of Aram. And in that alliance, there was a catch, and it was a big one. This is a big catch. And the catch is this. Aram had been Israel's enemy for over a century. Aram attacked Israel 
time and time again. And so that's what Isaiah is referring to when he says Israel leans on him who struck them. He's talking about Aram. Israel is leaning on an enemy to protect them from an enemy. At the time Isaiah wrote, God's people were a divided nation. The kings of Israel and Judah were in conflict with each other. This Assyrian invasion was coming and Israel had chosen this sworn enemy, Aram, to be their ally and to protect them against this other enemy, Assyria. And so they joined themselves to a people who had shown them time and time again that if they were able, they would destroy Israel too. Imagine being a citizen then of that kingdom. Imagine being a citizen in Israel trying to swallow that pill. Your king did what? Their king chose to put their fate in the hands of a nation who has very publicly declared their own hatred toward them. And he did it because this other nation hates them even worse. Imagine how trust is just gone. It's eroded how confidence in their leadership has collapsed, how optimism about their future is just shrouded in this cloud of darkness because they're being told to rely on their enemy to protect them from another enemy. How would you feel about that? Your king's saying, put your faith and your trust in this nation that has attacked you for the last 100 years. To this, the Lord tells his people, there will be a remnant who will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. In truth, a remnant will return. The word here for lean is another way of saying trust. And so you can see the situation that they're in. If they lean on one sworn enemy to save them from another, they're already condemned because there is no possible good ending to that story. We're told the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Mm, Really? In truth, it may be that the enemy of my enemy may still just be another enemy waiting in line. And that's what's happening here. And the Lord is saying, I will preserve a remnant who will not trust in the enemy, but will trust in the righteous, merciful, mighty God who promised in a greater covenant than this defensive alliance between Israel and Aram to never leave and never forsake his people. To this, Isaiah says, to us a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. A description of Jesus as a king, that's what it means for the government to be on his shoulders. The government is on the shoulders of the king. And this, of course, is a reference to Christ, whose birth we celebrate at Christmas. And what are we celebrating? We're celebrating how he is closing, how he is bridging that chasm between what it is that we think we want and what it is that we actually need. That's why Jesus was born. He is the remnant who will return. He is their mighty God. He is the one who will not strike them, but will save them. 
that mighty God has come, that child has been born, that king has been given. Fast forward then to that week where Jesus lays down his life. Go back a few days from when he's in Pilate's chamber to the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday. And Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. It's the beginning of the week in which he's crucified and he rides in in the exact same way that Solomon rode into Jerusalem during his coronation. He reconstructs the moment. It's fascinating during Solomon's coronation. As he rides into Jerusalem, he rides in on a colt. And before him is a priest. And on the colt sits the king. And behind the colt is the prophet. And you have a prophet, priest, and king. And Solomon's coronation. And here you have Jesus alone. But he is all of them. And he is riding in and the people are responding to him in this way. Because what are they doing? As the colt crests the rim of the Kidron Valley in Jerusalem, there is shining in the sun as it does. And his ears are echoing the words of the people who are pleading with him to save them. That's what Hosanna means, save us. Save us now. Give us peace. They're pleading with him to give them peace. And as he rides, he's thinking about the travail of his kinsmen. He's thinking about their constant struggle to receive the love of their maker. He's thinking of God's strong hand of discipline, of the way their hearts broke when Babylon and Assyria carried them off into exile and how hardened they had become to the idea of hope because they were a people who had this history of depending on enemies to deliver them from other enemies. And we still have that history, many of us, in the way we navigate this world. And Jesus stopped the colt and he began to weep. And he said to this city, Jerusalem, if only you had known the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from you. And the day is coming when not one stone will be left upon another in you because you didn't know the time of your visitation. This was the hour of Jerusalem's visitation. And Jesus, in response to that moment, loved her. He loved Jerusalem. He wept for her. He grieved for her. He wept because what the people wanted and what the people needed were so far apart from each other. And he wept because he knew the full extent of the salvation these people required. And he knew what it would cost. And he knew that he was in the process of paying that cost. He knew salvation was unfolding before them in that very moment that the punishment that would bring them peace, as Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, was about to be laid upon him. This king who is not just stronger than other kings, but is the king of the cosmos. And he knew that the religious leaders would play a role in bringing this punishment to him, and he knew the reason they would do it is because they were trusting in an enemy to deliver them from another enemy. They were looking to Rome. They feared Rome more than they feared God. They looked to their enemy for peace. And he knew they would be willing to kill one of their own if it meant 
preserving the privilege that Caesar had now granted them to still have an operational temple. And so with tears in his eyes, he rides past the people into the city, makes his way to the temple as the people part before him like a holy curtain being torn, crying out, Hosanna, please save us, please save us. Oh, the situations we get ourselves into, trusting an enemy to deliver us from an enemy. The pain we embrace to escape the pain we want to avoid. This world is a painful place to live in. And that is unavoidable. It is. And sometimes that pain comes on us suddenly without warning and it just takes our legs out from under us. But sometimes also, we get to choose our pain. We get to choose which pain. What do we want to come out on the other side of? If we have no mighty God, if we have no righteous king, then what we're often going to do is choose an enemy for our protection. But we have a mighty God who has come in the form of this redeemer who has secured our peace with our maker forever when we trust in him. We're not left without help. Jesus is the mightiest king there has ever been. And that king has told us, in this world, you will have trouble. We will have trouble here. So what will you do and to what will you turn to navigate the trouble, to navigate that pain? Will you turn to another enemy? Will you turn to another painful road? Will you defend yourself against the pain of broken relationships by running to the pain of addiction? Will you defend yourself against heartbreak by turning to that enemy voice that tells you to never let yourself get close enough to get hurt again? That's just choosing the pain of present isolation to avoid the pain of future isolation. Will you try to control the future by attempting to control everyone and everything around you? Jesus stands in Pilate's chamber and Pilate says, I'm the one with the power here. I'm the one with the authority here. And Jesus corrects him. You don't have any power. The only power you have is power that has been given to you for this moment. And even that, Pilate, you don't understand the power of what it is that you're about to decide. Because what you're about to do is you're about to participate in to the degree that you will now be included by name in the Apostles' Creed as a fundamental description of what it is that Christians believe. You are about to play a role in the redemption of the remnant of the people of God. That's how little power you actually have. If Jesus has this kind of power to care for you and to meet your needs and to know you and to love you perfectly, then you can look to him to protect you to protect you from harm. He's your great defender. You don't need to look 
to enemies, to things that would want to destroy and diminish your life for safety. And Jesus' posture toward us, even when our hearts are fickle, is a posture of love. His posture toward his own people who rejected him is one of love and affection and grief and tears. They ignored him. They looked to enemies to be their defense, but what did it do? It didn't stop him. It did not stop him from finishing what it is that he came to do, and that was offer up his life as the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. And so during Advent, we hear the voice of Jesus calling us to himself, this mighty God who is not just stronger than other strong kings, but is strong in the sense that he is unto himself perfectly strong where there is no threat against him. During Advent, we hear the voice of that king calling us to himself the day of our visitation. He came to us. He laid down his life. He defeated the power of death for us. And now he bids us come to him. Is today the day of your visitation? Let's pray. Father, we confess that often when we ask you to be strong for us, we're just asking you to be stronger than these other things that seem so strong and so powerful. Forgive us for having such a small estimation of your might. Help us to understand what it means from our earthbound perspective and all the limits that go with it. Help us to understand what it means that you are all-powerful and that you are all loving, and that you are all knowing, and you are gracious and merciful and kind and sovereign. Help us to trust you in that. Help us to see the places where we're actually looking to things that are enemies against our soul, enemies against our heart, to defend us and protect us from from other pains that we really want to avoid, from the addictions and the manipulations and the controlling of narratives and the spinning of truths and the amassing of wealth and and all of the things that we would look to and try to do to get some sort of control over this world so that it can't hurt us. Help us to take to heart the rest of what you said after you said in this world we will have trouble. You told us take heart because I have overcome the world. Lord Jesus, we thank you for that. We thank you that you have overcome the world by coming to it in the flesh. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.